From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Ted Nisi. Tim White is off this week. Later on the show, I'll be joined by Joe Fleming and Steph Machado for a political roundtable on the state of Rhode Island's special election for Congress. It's coming right up, believe it or not. First, though, I'm going to be joined by one of the candidates in that special election, and he is Democrat Don Carlson. Don, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Ted. It's good to be here. And a belated welcome back from your paternity. I hope <laughs> it was you. as beautiful and rewarding as mine were with my three kids. Yeah, it was It was good. It was good. It was uh, a lot of diaper changing. Um, <laughs> it's, but I was lucky to have the time with my daughter. It's part of the bonding experience. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and luckily everyone halted the race till I came back, it felt like. So let's get right down to it. 60 seconds or less, why do you want to be in Congress? You know, uh, I think there's a lot of problems that we have in our society right now that we face as a country, and uh, we're not fixing them. So the answers aren't that hard. You know, we know what we need to do to fix the climate change issues or to mitigate and remediate climate change. We have a, good idea, a lot of good ideas about what we could do about education. We know what we need to do to fix gun safety issues. We had an assault weapons ban that worked for a long time. There's a long list of these things. And I feel like what's happening right now is we're not implementing those solutions. We're just not getting to yes on those. I think I can help with that because I'm a pretty good process guy. I'm a pretty good negotiator. And my whole life I've engaged in trying to go into conflict and find common ground. So what I really want to try to do is make the House of Representatives work better to get to the solutions we know we need to implement. Isn't the problem fundamentally that Republicans and Democrats disagree about those very issues you just brought up? And with Republicans in control of the chamber you want to join, they're going to say, that sounds nice, Don, but we have other priorities. Yeah, well, my expectation is they won't be in charge for long. So I think the intention here is to win this seat and then win Congress back in 2024. And that's a really important step because, as you know, there's not much the minority can accomplish in the House of Representatives. And it's some Republicans, I think, that are a problem there. You know, President Biden does a good job distinguishing between MAGA Republicans and more reasonable Republicans. And I think there are a lot of MAGA Republicans out there that are in the way. Some of them are using the House of Representatives really as a TV set, like this TV set, and are using it to create their own reality TV show. And they raise a lot of money by doing that. And those probably those folks probably need to be sent home for good. Um, and then there are other people that we probably can work with uh, as Republicans and Democrats together, as patriots, as Americans, you know, just coming out of July 4th weekend. And I think it's important to remember there are a lot of things that bring us together as a country, a lot of principles that we need to remind ourselves that we share in common, which is a really important theme for me. So, you know, I'll be honest, most of the candidates come on and say some version of that. They care about climate change. They care about gun control, et cetera. Um, what do you think you have that the others do not have um, that would, you know, for the voters who are looking at 22 Democrats have filed for this seat? Yeah. The, uh, most people tell me in the supermarket they do not know how to differentiate all of you. So what is different about Don Carlson? Most common question I get when I go around collecting signatures or doing door knocking or meeting people on the street uh, or at the Bristol Parade, the most common question I get. The answer is experience. So I've had a long career, a lot of experience in a lot of different fields. I have actually spent five years in the House of Representatives. That's the job I'm auditioning for here, you know? So I actually know where the bathrooms are. Just because <laughs> working in the House of Representatives. Yes, yes, very clear, yeah. As a senior staffer, first for Joe Kennedy, I was his legislative director and chief counsel when he got elected, Joe Kennedy II, back in the early 90s. And then also for my friend Jim Himes, who's a, con a congressman from Fairfield County, Connecticut. So I've spent time there, I understand the institution. I actually have a deep affection for the institution. And it's kind of heartbreaking to see how badly it's become dysfunctional these days. So I kind of have an aspiration to help fix that and bring us to a place where we can actually make our government functional again. You know, we're a world-class country. We're the best country on, on earth, and we deserve a world-class government. So we don't mind getting as little into the weeds on newsmakers. You have, as you said, you worked in the House for Joe Kennedy II and then for Jim Himes. 
you know, I've read different uh, ideas for reforming how the House works. Is it is it to give the minority a little more power or at least to take power away from the Speaker's office, no matter which party the Speaker's in? What do you think? What do you think could make the House work a little better, not be maybe quite as much of just a partisan brawling match as it is right now? Yeah, I think it has to do with coalition building. And, you know, there's a couple interesting articles on this. Atlantic Magazine has done a series of articles on the, the shadow Congress, mm -hmm. all the stuff that happens right off the national radar, the issues that aren't the super hot button issues that push everybody's buttons, like, like abortion and gun safety and things like that, transgender rights, those issues get right on the national radar. But about 85% of the work is just getting things done, getting a budget passed, getting a defense bill authorized, getting highway money spent. And on that, people are actually relatively collaborative. I think the key is building on that success in that 85% to try to take some of that collaboration to a level where we actually do get things done for the country. Because we do have some serious problems and we do need to address them. We can't continue in this polarized state forever. All right, so uh, we're going to talk more about policy in a minute, but I want to talk about politics a little okay. bit here. Um, so you've never run for office before, as right. far as I know, not in Rhode Island, certainly. Um, That's right. You don't have a high profile here. One thing you do have is money. You yes. just announced you're putting $600,000 of your own money into this race. Uh, is that your full investment? Could you spend even more than that if you think you can win? You know, potentially, if that's what it takes, really it's what it takes to get my message out to folks. And that partly that's introducing myself to voters, because I do have a long bio, you know, and, and people here in the state don't know me as well as they know some of the other candidates. And, you know, I started out growing up here in Rhode Island. My first job was at Newport Creamery. I went to public high school all the way through. I actually think in those days, the high schools in Warwick, Rhode Island, were really good. I was well prepared for college when I got there. And, uh, Which you know, Warwick High School? I went to Tollgate. Tollgate. Yeah, I'm a Tollgate Titan through and through. And, but Winman and Tollgate were brand new schools with really great teachers when I was there. There. And I feel like that's what we're missing today. We're missing that investment in the future of our country by educating our children in a really world-class sort of way. And that's one of the things that makes me want to move to this direction and go to Congress, is to make sure that we invest enough in our children and in their education and in their future. Because it's the kind of thing that really is an investment. It has a tangible return. People actually do better in life when they have, you know, economically. But it also has richness and reward in your life. You, you can live a full and more richer life if you wind up having a really good education. Good like pivot, I was but I'm have. taking you back to politics. Um, Please so do. Some yeah. of the other candidates, uh, they were watching you very nervously earlier in the race because they knew you had some financial resources you could bring to this, and they thought you would use it by now. Um, but you, you haven't been on TV. You haven't, I know you say, oh, I've been out. I've been meeting people and stuff. But we know how you have to do some big stuff in a campaign, especially when you start little known. When are we going to see a more robust or public, whatever word you'd prefer, effort out of the Carlson campaign? Monday. Monday. What happened? Okay. What happens Monday? <laughs> well, Monday we start a digital campaign. Okay. So we'll be up live on digital, and that'll be a pretty intense effort for a while. And that will build to a campaign on TV as well, just to try to get my message of uh, out to the voters, a message of trying to restore our country to a state where we can really work together. When do you think you'll go on the airwaves? Probably sometime later this month. You know, mm -hmm. I think it depends a lot on when people start paying attention. That's been the rate limiting factor for us so far is that, as you say, with all these candidates, it kind of gives people a headache and they're having a hard time paying attention. Plus, it's summer. We just went through July 4th weekend. Mm -hmm. People have other things on their mind. So you don't want to waste those resources. You want to make sure you devote them at a time when people are, are ready to listen. One of your opponents, uh, Gabe Amo, put out a fundraising email this week and made a criticism we always hear with someone who can help to self-fund their race. He said, quote, you shouldn't have to be wealthy to run for office and win. How do you respond to that criticism of, of using a bunch of your own money to get an advantage over the others? I, I totally agree with that criticism, actually. And if I had my way, we'd do all public financing or we'd do some, you know, private financing at a low dollar level with then public match. I think that would be a much better system. And I, I would actually work towards that if I'm elected in office. And I think it's a much better way to run politics because it shouldn't be the province of the rich. That's certainly the case. 
Um, you know, in my case, I think it's really important that I'm asking the people of Rhode Island to put their faith in me, so I should meet them partway there and put their, my faith in them to choose a congressman they can really be proud of. So let's get back to what you'd like to do if you were in the House. Um, one question I always like to ask potential candidates for Congress, if, you, if, if the speaker came to you or the minority leader right now for the Democrats and said, you can have any committee you want, what committee would you ask for? That's easy. Energy and commerce. For Why? Me. Um, I'm pretty deep in sustainability. So for the last 25 years, I've helped to build and create and really foster companies that are in the sustainability space. Partly that's renewable energy. Partly it's also batteries and grid improvements and smart meters and environmentally safe lithium mining, a whole range of different companies that have been involved in creating and building. And those companies are trying to do something in the private sector to mitigate and remediate climate change. And this is a really important point because this is not something our government can do by itself. We really need the ingenuity and creativity of the private sector, and we have to have the skills to be able to work effectively with people in the private sector to develop these kinds of ideas. So that's a big thing that I would want to work on, and energy and commerce really is the place to how do that. How much of that, as someone who knows about that, how much of that is money? They put so much money into those programs in the Inflation Reduction Act. They sure did. The Democrats yeah. did. So how much of it is just more money into that versus things like Sheldon Whitehouse has a bill to make it easier to build the transmission lines, because right. he says you're not going to be able to actually take the renewable energy and get it to the population centers right now because it's so hard to get anything built. Yeah, and, and Sheldon is exactly right about that. Transmission lines are critically important because if you're going to create new solar facilities, for example, a big chunk of the cost is in building the transmission line. And if you can do that cost effectively and come up with creative ways to do that, then you can have more decentralized solar and you, can straight, you don't have to have a thousand acres to make it financially viable. So that's a big one. I like that you mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act because it probably is the most significant environmental legislation since the Clean Water Act, really, since the 70s. And that's a really big deal because that's a lot of money on the table. And I feel like I really do have the skills to bring that money home to Rhode Island. The reality is we went from a collective 34 years in Congress of experience last year to five months of experience in Congress between our two representatives, right? And that's only Seth, right? So that whoever is elected to this office will be the most junior person in Congress as a reality. So what you really want is somebody who can hit the ground running, who has the skills to build coalitions, to make alliances, and to figure out how to get that Inflation Reduction Act money into Rhode Island. We could be the renewable energy hub for New England. We could be a net energy exporter in a few years with the wind farms going up. How cool would that be for Rhode Island to be a net energy exporter? But we need to get the resources to do that, and we need to be in the game. We need to be bidding on these facilities that are going up in New Bedford and Fall River. Governor Couture used to say we could be the Saudi Arabia of wind. There you uh, go. That was one of his favorite lines. <laughs> um, I, you, you work currently at Yale Law. You're on leave or you have summer break to run for Congress right now. But so you think about the law. Um, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, is a big issue for Democrats right now. These ethics scandals and, of course, yeah. the decisions that have been uh, coming down that a lot of Democrats don't like. I'm curious, you're a law professor. When you think about these various reform proposals, let's put aside the ethics stuff. There's a lot of agreement on the ethics stuff. Right. But the Democrats who say you should expand the court or you should implement term limits. Um, where are you on that? What do you think about those structural proposed changes to the Supreme Court? We'll start with the problem. The problem is real. I mean, when I was a young lawyer, we revered the Supreme Court. It was the one institution of government that had the highest integrity, the highest ratings for reliability, in some ways the highest popularity, and we trusted the court to call balls and strikes and to make fair decisions. I think with Bush versus Gore in 2000, that started to erode. That was a five to four decision that stopped the Florida recount and sent the presidency to George Bush. And I think from that day to this, the Supreme Court has become increasingly politicized. And so a really great and important and revered institution has been really made much more political over the last 23 years. And that's something we need to reverse. We need some organization in our government that isn't inherently political. You know, the presidency and Congress are, that's where democracy happens. That's where politics happens. So we need a neutral arbiter on the sidelines that can call the balls and strikes. And we've lost that. 
We need to restore that. So the problem is clear. How you do it, I'm open to suggestions. I don't know about expanding the Supreme Court. In some ways, it's a great idea because we shouldn't have a national paroxysm of anxiety every time a justice dies or retires. We don't when a senator dies or retires, right? So it shouldn't be quite such a big deal, and it should be smoother and easier to get a new justice appointed. Maybe it would be fair to give every president a certain number of appointments. Maybe it would be fair to have term limit on the Supreme Court so that they can't serve forever, so that you don't get this impetus to get younger and younger justices on the Supreme Court. And it's not just the Supreme 15 Court. 15 seconds. It's not just the Supreme Court. It's all of the court system that needs to be reformed in that way. All right, Don Carlson, Democrat, running for Congress in the 1st District. Uh, early voting starts a little over a month, so I'm sure you'll be doing a lot of campaign between now and then. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ted. Appreciate All right. it. And uh, right now we're going to take a break. But when we come back from Newsmakers, what is the state of this first district race? And does this fellow have a shot? We will ask Joe Fleming and Steph Machado. Stick with us on Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Ted Nisi. Tim White is off this week, and we're having a political roundtable to kick off the true summertime season right now as the campaign heats up. And I'm joined by 12 News political analyst Joe Fleming and Steph Machado, now a reporter at the Boston Globe, but of course a proud Channel 12 alumni. I, believe. Oh, I think you're course. proud of it. I hope Extremely so. proud. That's good. That's what I like <laughs> to hear. So, guys, I want to start right off with um, the interview we just heard um, with Don Carlson. First half, probably a lot of viewers hadn't heard it from him before today's interview as they're watching this morning. Uh, Joe, what, what did you think? Did he sound plausible in such a crowded field? He does sound plausible. The question is, though, did he distinguish himself from the other candidates, which I'm not sure if he did. You've got 22 candidates at this point in the Democratic primary. You have to stand out. He has no name recognition at this time. He's going digital starting Monday, but that's not going to get him the name recognition he needs. So he has a long way to go yet. But, I mean, he does sound very credible. And, Steph, you've been covering this race closely, just like I have. Um, a lot of what I heard there, as I said to him, I feel like I've heard from the other candidates, too. Right, exactly. He has a lot in common with the other candidates. One thing he has in common with many candidates is that no one knows who he is yet. <laughs> right. The difference is that he does have a lot of money because he's put a, a large chunk of his mm -hmm. own personal money into his campaign. But, you know, when he said, I have an announcement coming Monday, I said, oh, he's going up on TV. And he said he's going to do digital ads, right. which is fine. But if he wants early voting starts in less than six weeks. Yeah. So if he wants to get name recognition from a large enough swath of the district, mm -hmm. he has to do something to get everyone, whether it's mailers, whether it's commercials, something to get everyone to figure out who he is. And in the summer, it's not easy to gain name recognition. You need to spend a lot of money. And while he puts 600000 in the campaign, will he use all that money? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's another question. We've seen candidates put money in but not use it all. Sounds like he's going to use it. But again, it takes a lot to get yourself known, and you're running out of time very quickly. Now, that said, I, I sh we should, in his defense, point out, Financially, he is almost certainly the leader right now. Right. With that 600000 I think he said he has $750,000 on hand or something yeah. like that. The biggest numbers we've heard from other candidates is in the 400s range. So. Right. So he has that advantage. He needs to take he needs to take right. advantage of it. And, you know, it's sort of a chicken or the egg. He said he wasn't sure when he would go up with TV commercials because people aren't paying attention. But maybe they'll start paying attention <laughs> right. when they start turning on their TV and say, oh, there's a congressional race this year. Right. What if the voters don't who, pay attention until October? Who, who knew? Yeah. <laughs> and he can get out there right now while no one else is on TV. You know, three or four weeks from now, you may have seven, eight, nine candidates on TV and you're going to get lost in the shuffle. So he has an opportunity right now to be the, in the forefront of the TV ads. Well, and we're, we're focused on Carson because he was on today, but let's, if we broaden it out, the fundamental thing we're talking about here is we are all still waiting for this race to truly kind of kick into full gear, right? I'm shocked. I'm really shocked that this race has not moved. I mean, starting back in March, we thought this was going to be a really hot and heavy race because it was a very Democratic district. 
but it's been very quiet. I think part of the reason is the people haven't raised all the money they thought they would. Mm. With so many candidates, people give money, say, look, I don't give you so much because I have to help the other candidates too, because they're all friends of mine. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kept the money down and people are trying to be careful with the money. But again, you may save it and it's going to be too late at some point. Yeah, I mean, when do you think, what is going to lead people, Steph, to start to actually pay attention here? I honestly don't know <laughs> because we're not seeing a lot of press conferences. We're not seeing a lot of activity and sort of waiting for it's we're all sort of waiting for something to happen right, right? and i think it's the benefit is to the is to the candidates who do have name recognition mm -hmm. sabina matos aaron Regenberg, who people know who they are they are currently believed to be the front runners we don't have any independent polling but um they are benefiting from the fact that there's not a lot of activity and mm -hmm. these other candidates are not sort of moving up the ranks in terms of people getting to know who they are and you know i um I had expected that maybe not all the, at the time, 15 Democrats who'd said they were running would actually pull paperwork last week when we had the filing deadline. We got 22. Everyone pulled papers. Now, we might see and it more, thin. Plus more. Plus more, <laughs> right. And we may see that thin out because they have to collect their signatures. Yeah, they have to get 500 signatures by what, July 16th. Yeah. I expect that number to go down some. There'll be 500 valid signatures all from the first congressional district too. But when you yes. start with 22, it's believable to have 12-ish candidates so. on the ballot, maybe over a half dozen running somewhat serious yeah. campaigns. A few months ago, you yeah. projected about eight candidates. Now it looks like no. there could be even more. Yeah. I so, think we'll be in the double digits on the ballot. The question right. is, at some point later in the summer, will the candidates start consolidating, you know, like-minded candidates right. consolidate around one person? I don't know. Their name's still going to be on the ballot either way. Well, right. So let's let's talk about the candidates. Steph, you already alluded to Sabina Matos, lieutenant governor, widely seen as the frontrunner, how strong a frontrunner is up for debate. There's kind of a glass-half-full, glass-half-empty view of her candidacy right now, it feels like. Yeah, and, you know, the second quarter ended last week. The While the candidates don't have to file their campaign reports until... July 15th, many of them were quick to put out how much money they had raised because they knew that it would make news. Her campaign has not answered. Uh, my colleague Ed Fitzpatrick has asked three times. <laughs> they haven't said how much that how much she's raised yet. Yeah, so they I claim to me this was like, oh, it was Friday night. Money was still coming in. That was a week ago. We still haven't heard anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, um, we, Ed, Ed asked yesterday. So, you know, still haven't gotten that number as of the time that we're taping this show. So I don't know if that means, I don't know what that means for how much she raised, but it... Perhaps it's not good news, and other candidates are saying, "Oh, I've raised four hundred thousand in in that range." Obviously, with with Carlson having the most money because of his self funding, but you know she has the most name recognition, so she is sort of just needs to beat back right keep anyone, everyone else from keep getting everyone strong, else yeah. away. Mm -hmm. She also has Emily's list, so even if she's a little short of money, if they come in with money, they could do a lot of advertising, independent expenditures, which could help her also. I mean, the thing to keep in mind with all these outside groups. Everyone knows a Democrat's going to probably win the seat because it's such a Democratic district. And almost every single one of them are the same on all the issues. So no matter who wins, they're going to get what they're looking for in the end. But I think Emily's list could be a big impact for uh, the lieutenant governor. Now, you, you have a clear contrast, I would say, between Sabina Matos, very much an establishment Democrat picked by the current governor to be LG, uh, with Aaron Regenberg, former state rep, always been uh, progressive, um, you know, in the David Siegel wing of, of mm -hmm. that, of the Democratic Party in Rhode Island. Matos put out a poll, as you say, Steph, it's not independent, but they had him as her closest challenger. He was at 9%, mm -hmm. she was at 22%. I mean, he's really trying to get a very specific right. group of voters to know he's their candidate. Yeah, he's looking for the progressives. Remember, he ran for lieutenant governor about five years ago, came very close to beating Dan McKee. But again, in politics, five years is a long time, Ted. Yeah. People forget. 
What he has to do is mobilize all these uh, progressive voters to get them out. I think he has a working families endorsement. That could be key for him because they provide a lot of ground troops. And this election, I believe, is going to be a lot more ground troops and identifying your voters and getting them to the polls or getting them to vote early. So that could be a big plus for him. But it, you're right. He's going to have a small group of voters and hoping everybody else divides the rest he of the vote. He also got uh, Jane Fonda's pack uh, endorsed him <laughs> so this week. So we'll I, see if Jane I Fonda's hitting the streets. need data on the Jane Fonda vote I know. I want to see CD Jane Fonda at a, at a Central Falls uh, high rise or seniors <laughs> yeah. or something uh, come September. Steph, let's talk about Gabe Amo, a candidate known to the insider class in Rhode Island. He's worked for various people. He worked at the White House. Um, he had a strong fundraising number, but as we keep talking with others, probably largely unknown to the voter. Yeah, exactly. And you and I talk to a lot of people in politics for our jobs, so we are hearing about him a lot, but not necessarily from the average voter. And so that's his challenge, is how does he break out of, yes, the Gang of 500 that's supporting him, or people are supporting him, but he needs to get more name recognition. And he did pull a, a, a decent fundraising number, and so he's definitely in the mix yeah, He raised, people. I think, $460,000. Aaron Regenberg said he raised four seventy. And we should say that they raised quite a bit more than Don Carlson. He just could write a big personal check on top of it. Right, exactly. And he's out and about. He sends us these schedules every day of these different places that he's going to be campaigning. And all, all the candidates are out and about, but you have to do more than... The, just the mm -hmm. retail politics. And, and it's not just all about money in these races. We've seen candidates who have had a lot of money and have still lost. It's how you use that money and what you do with that money. You know, is he going to invest it in a ground game? Because I really believe this race, a lot of it's going to be ground game, not so much TV media because in the summer people aren't watching. But we haven't seen any type of ground game yet. We haven't seen any paid media from him. So again, his name recognition is down at the bottom right now. He has to do something very soon to become a viable candidate. Well, and you, let's, I'll stick with you, Joe, because another person I'm watching is Sandra Cano, the state senator. She's the chair of the Education Committee. Um, she's told us she expects to raise $250,000, which includes, I think, some significant personal investment in the race. You've heard that she has a, a different, she knows she's going to be outspending this. Right. They have a different strategy. From what I'm hearing simply, she knows she's not going to have the money. $250,000 is not going to get you much TV at all. I think she's going to be concentrating on a ground game. And I think what she's doing is she's looking at the Blackstone Valley. You know, she has the mayor of Tuckadori supporting her. She's trying to build up support there. She's trying to go north in other communities, get mayors on board with her, get endorsements. She's had a number of representatives and senators who have already endorsed her. So I think that's going to be her game, identifying her voters and just trying to get them out. And then you, Steph, last week were at um, Nick Audiello, had a <laughs> former, he worked in the Raimondo administration. He's had various private sector jobs. Um, he's, he's doing quite a bit, even through a news conference, which hasn't happened often. He did. We haven't had a lot of news conferences <laughs> in this race, so I said, okay, I'll go. It was on the day of the filing deadline, so a lot of reporters were writing stories about the race anyway, so it was a smart day for him to have a news conference. He didn't announce very much. He uh, basically was calling on... Um, basically us, <laughs> news outlets to hold debates um, before early voting begins, which is challenging because it, when you have an early September primary and people are paying attention near the end of mm -hmm. August, but early voting starts mid-August, there's sort of that question of, of when debates should be held. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he, two TV stations showed up and the Globe showed up and got a little bit of attention from himself. I he's, don't... he's been pretty active, I would yes. say, in this field anyway. Yes, I received a mailer from him already. Um, he's been active more than the other candidates, I believe. And again, he realizes he has very low name recognition, trying to get some name recognition up there to move into that top tier of candidates. The he problem is that he's one of 
like I, I should have counted, but he's one of a lot of candidates right. who live in Providence. And he actually doesn't live in the first congressional district. He lives in the other half of Providence. But there's so many candidates from Providence. So even <laughs> if you can get yourself right. a, a, a small base of support, you're s- potentially splitting the vote with a lot of other candidates yeah. from the same And, and that's one reason Mayor Smiley said here on Newsmakers last week he is not endorsing. No. No. Said, he said he basically said it could hurt the city because I'm going to make someone mad he's if I endorse. friends with many of them. Exactly. I, I think that's why a lot of people aren't endorsing candidates because they're friends with a lot of these candidates and a number of them are elected officials already and they don't want to tick them off if they if these candidates lose they have to still deal with them over the next year i think i think a lot of people would love to have an endorsement from east providence mayor bob de silva that's another part of this district i saw sabina matos arm in arm with him at the fourth of july they put some pictures up what about the others we we can't get to every person i'm sorry to the other candidates we do have the full list on our website um but you know you have state reps we haven't mentioned, Providence City Councilor is running, other people. I mean, is there room for more people to vault into the tier we're talking about? I think that there is, but they really have to do something big to to be able to do right. that. I mean, John Gonsalves is the Providence City Councilor who's in the race. You know, he's been very active. He's definitely taking the campaign seriously, but at the same time, I'm not seeing any other city councilors jumping to endorse him. Mm. He got criticism from one of them even over voting uh, against the budget. Exactly. Mm. Uh, He put out a statement via his his campaign person about his vote he took on the city council. So uh, he's, you know, you need some you need some sort of oomph, right, yeah. to get you over that line. There's Senator Ana Quesada, also from Providence. All these people have and their chunk like of Only like 15 seconds ago, but Steve Casey's uh, state rep, someone you have an he, eye on? He, I keep an eye on him because he's the one conservative in the race that stands out. You know, he, he's... Um, pro-life, pro-gun. If you can mobilize these groups, you can get a block of votes. And again, there's going to be so few voting. And I really think in this race, endorsements could be key if they can get their voters out. Five seconds here. Uh, How much percent do you think it's going to take to win this right now? Right now, I think it could be as low as 10,000 votes could win this race. 10,000 votes, member of Congress, probably safe forever after that. It's it's a wild <laughs> thing. But we will keep uh, monitoring for an election to actually kick off in this first district. Steph Machado, Joe Fleming, thank you both for joining us. Tim White will be back next week. We'll see you then on Newsmakers. <laughs>